0: The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Berguin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182. Every story needs a good villain, and few things provide better inspiration for one than real people who did very despicable things. When Jamie and Claire Fraser arrive in the American colonies in 1767, they are almost immediately embraced by the generosity and ulterior motives of someone who will open the door to the next chapter of their lives. His name was Royal Governor William Tryon, and he is one of the chief antagonists in the Frasier's North Carolina story, something real North Carolinians would have known a little something about, having been forced to live under his leadership in the 1760s and 70s. It was due in part to Tryon's offer of land and stability in the western mountains of North Carolina, that Claire and Jamie decide to remain in the colony instead of returning home to Scotland. In many ways, he is the one who handed the Frasers their future, even though it came at a price. Nothing in colonial America was free, and Tryon's generous offer came entangled with undeniable strings, including Jamie's sworn loyalty to King George III and a commitment to build up a militia in his name, should the day come when brute force was needed to put the colonists in their place. For those who watch or read Outlander, or really anyone who knows their American history, you'll know that this kind of agreement was but a prophecy for the events to come. And it will be William Tryon who holds the Frasers' feet to the flames as war descends on their world. Hello and welcome to Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear, a podcast series telling the stories of North Carolina's Cape Fear region through the history of one of its oldest historic sites. My name is Hunter Ingram. I'm the Assistant Museum Director for the Bergwin Wright House and Gardens in Wilmington, and I'm your host for this podcast. This season on Bergwin Wright Presents, We are exploring the real North Carolina history depicted in the global phenomenon that is Outlander. The historical fiction book series from author Diana Gabaldon and the Stars series that adapted it for television. The story follows Claire, a World War II nurse who time travels back to 1743 Scotland, where she meets and eventually marries a devoted Highlander named Jamie. Together, the pair land in the American colonies in North Carolina on the eve of the Revolutionary War and soon find themselves players in the founding of a country. On this week's episode, we are taking some time to get to know the real Royal Governor William Tryon, the man who ultimately set Claire and Jamie on a collision course with the Revolution. The Frasiers have never found a shortage of villains and complicated figures in their adventures around the world, but few have been as consequential as Tryon, a king-appointed governor who uses and abuses his authority to tempt men like Jamie with their own corner of the New World, in exchange for loyalty he very much intends to exploit. In the Outlander series, we meet Tryon in Wilmington. Just a few years into his governorship. As we touched on in the first episode of this podcast, it was under his leadership that the residents of Brunswick Town and Wilmington revolted against him and the King's Stamp Act in 1766, which eventually leads him to look elsewhere when establishing a capital city. But it was here in the Cape Fear that he first catches the Frasers in his crosshairs whining and dining them alongside future Revolutionary War figure Alexander Lillington and eventually striking up a treacherous alliance. After all, it is Tryon who grants Jamie 10,000 acres of land in the North Carolina mountains, with the expectation that he and Claire will build a community of settlers on it, all of whom will defend the king's hold on the colonies should it ever be tested. In real life, Tryon was just as ruthless and reckless as Gabaldon and the TV series creators make him out to be. But history often proves that even fact can be more outrageous than fiction, and Tryon's life is no exception. How did he become the leader of North Carolina at such a crucial moment teetering on the edge of war? And how did his ego Ignite one of the first sparks of rebellion in the colony? Those are the questions we're going to answer today on Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear, Episode 4 The Reign of Tryon. <laughs> To talk about the rise of Royal Governor William Tryon and the monument to elegance that bears his name, I'm joined today by Susan Griffin, a historic interpreter at Tryon Palace in New Bern and the creator of the State Historic Sites Outlander-themed tour. Susan, thank you so much for joining me.
1: You're very welcome.
0: I'm excited to talk to you because I think a lot of people who watch Outlander who have read the books, they're going to recognize the name Tryon. Tryon Palace is one of the most visited historic sites in North Carolina, and so I'm interested in kind of learning a bit more about William Tryon. But before we do that, I think we need to play a bit of catch up because he's going to intersect with Claire and Jamie's story in 1767 when they arrive in Wilmington. But he has a, a whole story before that. So what do we know about his rise to the governorship and, and where he comes from?
1: Well, Tryon was actually um, a military officer prior to being a royal governor. In fact, when he arrives in North Carolina in 1764, he'd spent a year or two recovering from being wounded during what he would have called the Seven Years' War and what we in America call the French and Indian War. And he was at uh, several of the most devastating battles that were fought in France itself on port cities. He was a member of the king's first foot guard and uh, they were a distinct unit. They were actually allowed to have some of the king's coat of arms on the buttons and the colors matched uh, some of the court assigned colors of the highest ranking military officials under George the II. So, so they
0: really built up his ego there.
1: And, and, and well, he's young, too. I mean, he entered into the military in He's young when he starts, but I have to point out, Outlander kind of gets it a little wrong in casting Tim Downey. Tryon would have been about a decade younger, and so would his wife, than Jamie and Claire. (laughs) When they arrived here in 1764, Tryon was only 33 years old, and his wife was 31, and they had a cute three-year-old toddler. So for us down here in Newburgh, we're surrounded by all these military bases. This is a very sort of relatable family to us and Mrs. Tryon especially. She's the daughter of sort of a military general, Lord Wake, who was royal governor under George II um, of Bombay, or as we now call it, Mumbai, India. And so this is a, a marriage of families that were both involved also in the trading company, and both William Tryon's father and his wife, Margaret, actually worked for a time in India first.
0: Wow. So what what brought Tryon to North Carolina to take over the governorship?
1: Well, I think that was the fact that they do have great connections. William Tryon's sister Mary is a maid of honor to Queen Charlotte. So that has always helpful. You know, she's got the queen ear every day. And she actually uh, began serving in 1761. So that's three years prior to him getting the appointment. Mrs. Tryon, unfortunately, her father, Lord Wake, had passed. And wrote to go return to England. He was actually buried in Cape Town, South Africa. And she was an only child, his only heir. And a guardian was placed over her until she was married. And the guardian's name was Lord Hillsborough, which, of course, is a very familiar name. We have a town called Hillsborough. And historically, I I have to imagine for the Tryons that it was probably... Kind of frustrating to hear that there were riots in the town named after her guardian.
0: Absolutely, you were going to see that on the show and in the books. That's where some of the regulators do some of their uh,
1: yeah, some and, of their and worst. Showed that in season yeah. five, and I thought that was really wonderful for our state to see that sort of oh, here is the Hillsboro riots as they led into the Battle of Alamance. That's that's one of the actions that led Tryon to take sort of that military tactical officer he had been, and he puts it to the forefront.
0: Now, what kind of uh, what kind of governor? was William Tryon. I mean, what happens to North Carolina in those early years of his you know, rule?
1: Well, you know, he's more of what we would call a lieutenant governor in his first couple of years while Governor Dobbs is still alive. And he takes two tours or progresses, as he would call he and his wife both of the colony. Um, they spend some time with the good brethren out in what we now call Winston-Salem. Uh, Tryon actually goes and meets with some of the native representatives out towards Charlotte Way. And he uh, makes a treaty, which has them later call him the Gray Wolf. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of a little bit ambiguous to sort of shorten up all the treaty work. Uh, he essentially agrees to say no English will settle beyond a certain line. And then he starts sending Scots and Germans and others who are technically never going to admit, and Irish, that they are English. You know, they have no support for London in itself. These are people who were trying to get away from government in the first place. And of course, the Germans had never been loyal to the crown. So
0: that sounds like a politician in him uh, yeah. trying to find the uh, the gray area, the gray they wolf. They sent as a deputation
1: said. down to Newburn later to say, hey, you said no one's going to settle here. And he was like, well, you know, they're not actually English that are doing it. <laughs> so he had kept his side of the bargain. Yeah,
0: you know, and again, in a politician's way of keeping his side of the bargain.
1: I always like to say there are some good merits to him. He's definitely sort of pro-education. He established the New Bern, or has got the charter to establish the New Bern Academy in uh, 1766. He also uh, gained funding for the uh, very initial building of Queen's College, but he did that without permission of the crown, and so there would be a debate about it.
0: Well, well, tell me this. So Tryon really starts his governorship as we were talking about here in the the Cape Fear area, the lower Cape Fear area at Brunswick Town. You know, if you come through the Burgwin Wright House today, you're going to see a big portrait of Arthur Dobbs, who is his predecessor. Arthur mm-hmm. Dobbs dies at Brunswick Town, which you'll remember from our first episode. Yes. He's buried in uh, St. Philip's Church out there. And then Tryon takes over. And And for listeners of the show, they'll remember that we talked about the Stamp Act rebellion that happened here in our area. And William Tryon gets his ego bruised because the people here in the Cape Fear hold him hostage, uh, trying to rebel against the the crown's new stamp act in 1766 and so
1: torch-wielding mob (laughs)
0: exactly a torch-wielding mob that's what you always want to see come to your front steps when you're governor and uh and so william tryon really has his ego bruised he is ready to take a stand and so he starts to look elsewhere so what happens in tryon's story when he begins to look beyond brunswick town
1: Well, actually, he had already overlooked the property several times up here in New Bern. And there were several reasons for that. New Bern had the greatest population at the time. It was bigger than uh, Wilmington. And again, he's a tactical officer. So when you look at Wilmington, yes, it has a, a slightly deeper water port. That's great. But it also means the warships of the enemy. And again, that's heavily in his mind. He's only four or five years out of the war. They can load up the cannons and do a broadside shot right into the heart of downtown Wilmington. Yeah. Newburn is, you know, over forty miles up the shallow Noose River. There are ever-shifting sandbars. Unless you have a recent navigational map. In some of his writings, he alludes to the fact that should a warship from an enemy come up the river. If they don't have such a map, they're going to run aground, and he can put troops on either side and just wait for him to get thirsty. It's a tidal river. You can only drink that brackish water for so long before you get sick. And then the other thing was geography. I mean, the other royal capitals of Charlestown, or as we now call it, Charleston, South Carolina, Williamsburg, Virginia, if you think of an eastern coast edge of North Carolina, New Bern sort of makes sense. It's sort of geographically between the two halfway point. And so those are the three really very logical, tactical reasons. It's halfway between. It's easily defendable. And again, that proves true Uh, during the War of 1812. The British will put a a ship into the mouth of the noose, realize that we've moved our capital inland. I don't know how the officer didn't realize that already. And so he just heads up to Washington and helps
0: finish sacking that. (laughs) There you go. Well, what kind of town was New Bern at this time? What was making it so populous?
1: This is where you have really a major distillation of uh, turpentine, tar, and pitch. You've got shipbuilding, and that is, of course, the major uh, good that we're shipping over to England. We also are growing huge amounts of flax and hemp in the region. Both of these are the hemp primarily is going into rope making for rigging and things, but they're also uh, hemp and flax combined, uh, making you know fibers that are being shipped over to be made into cloth to sold back to us at a greatly higher price. <laughs> that, that's part of it. Newburn's um sort of the river shipping point for all these regions up further upriver, Kingston and beyond. They carry it down to here. We have slightly bigger coastal sailing vessels uh, that can go up and down the coast or can take it into the major ports like at Norfolk or Charleston or um Wilmington itself to go on those ocean going vessels to head outward back to England.
0: So there was there was plenty to to like in New Bern for try on.
1: Again, it, the population is greater here. So this was the place the big money was.
0: <laughs> well well let's let's kind of before we talk about what he's going to start building in New Bern, let's talk about what kind of leader he is as he really does take hold of the governorship. Arthur Dobbs dies pretty unexpectedly, uh, even though he has been sick. And then Tryon takes over. What kind of leader is Tryon? Because as people who watch Outlander and read Outlander, they know that he is certainly not beloved by every uh, member of the North Carolina colony, specifically those that are part of the Regulator Rebellion. So what kind of leadership is going to cause him to be so divisive?
1: He's not really listening to the actual people. He's listening to a lot of the officials in the West, the judges, the sheriffs, and some of the elected officials, the ones that seem very willing to enforce his policies. If you object to his policies, he is not very open to listening to further support. And so... Knowing what we know now, we know the regulators were correct. Uh, Edmund Fanning, the tax collector, that's actually shown in the series um, and the most recent season. Uh, the fiery cross. The gentleman Claire had to do quick hernia surgery on that had been beat up in the regulator.
0: Yeah, we talked about him in our uh, our Wilmington episode because he was the godfather of the uh, the son of of the Bergwin uh, name, John Bergwin, who built the house. Well,
1: he had been a convicted felon because he was holding more than one government job. And you know why is he still even allowed to keep a job when he was holding more than one government position? And he claims his defense, even though he's got a degree. In law is that he didn't know that it was illegal for him to hold more than one job <laughs> that didn't go over well and then the fine that he paid i mean a penny per charge that he was found guilty of and to be allowed to keep whichever job he wished of his choose and he chose tax collector and according to all accounts he was making himself wealthy in goods and taking things into his own house that he was collecting as taxes And we see that play out again and again from 1766 really through just before the battle that Tryon is really not opening to listening to anyone who doesn't agree with what he wants to do.
0: He's fortifying himself with people who do not speak for the larger sect in North Carolina. He doesn't
1: want to hear it. And that's especially true and easy to see when you read through his letters. He At first, he's talking a grievance of the colonies. But by 1768, he's referring to the regulators as the insurgents. <laughs> And that is definitely a military term. That is not something a general politician would use. That's a military officer defining them already as somewhat of an enemy. Of course, he did raise the militia early in 1767, 68, a couple of times. They almost met up at Salisbury and then uh, people started talking and everyone stood down again. But by October of 1770, when Tryon's moved into the newly completed palace, October is the first month everyone comes down. And it's clear that the regulators have not stopped. They're still sending petitions. And that's when Tryon really, really has had enough. He goes on to sort of uh, end the legislature meeting at that time. And that's when he says, you know, I'm going to call up a thousand man militia. And if you bring this up again for spring session, you don't have to bother coming down to New Bern. I'll come to you with
0: the army. <laughs> Not the best way that you want to uh, want to govern or at least see your leader govern. Well, let, let's talk about how we transition, you know, from Brunswick Town to Tryon Palace, because he does really make a lot of waves, at least if you're, you know, you're watching the Outlander show and certainly in history. By building this new palace, you know, we call it a palace today, but building this new residence for himself in New Bern in the show, you I think you hear Lord John call it a monument to elegance in an early episode. And he says that to Murta, who is going to be one of the leaders of the rebellion in the TV show. And so it's it's rubbing a lot of people the wrong way, but why is he building this? this massive thing for himself in New Bern. Doesn't he think that it's going to cause some problems?
1: First of all, the colony actually provides along with the crown's permission, 5,000 pounds sterling, but he's going to go three times over budget. (laughs) And, you know, it is a huge structure in the period. The palace is going to be the biggest structure for a good 20 years in this colony. There were wealthy sort of colonial plantation owners but most of them did not have a four-story solid brick building with two colonnades attaching the two dependencies of the kitchen office and the stable office. There was not even a formal bricks works anyplace in North Carolina. Tryon had to send John Hawks, the architect that came over with him, originally in 1764, to Philadelphia to recruit masons along with their families to move here. And then they did some soil surveys down here along the Neuse and the Trent Rivers to find the right clay. They built up bricks works and they're training others here in North Carolina as they do so in the art of masonry. And so they spent a good year or so, once the bricks work is up and going, of just producing bricks and, you know, getting ready to teach people how to actually construct well with them.
0: Wow, that's 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 called building out of your means, if nothing else. I mean, that's that's a heck of a start for what is going to be an even bigger place.
1: And when he goes three times over budget, of course, the 10,000 pound sterling difference he levies as a poll tax on the colonists. So you have all of these other taxes coming in in the same decade and now a tax for a capital that no one had really petitioned with any, you know, really great
0: pursuit You can kind of see why he is not the most popular man in North Carolina. He has really rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, especially those people who have come over to North Carolina like Scottish Highlanders, not exclusively Scottish Highlanders, but people who have come over looking for, hopefully, a more fair system to live under, a last resort in some cases, and now they feel probably they're being taken advantage of.
1: Yeah. And we also forget sometimes when we think about what they call the back country, really um, Hillsborough West. So Alamance and all of those counties, we forget that a lot of those settlers didn't come by ship. They didn't come from overseas. They came down the wagon road um, from Pennsylvania and other norma- Northern colonies. And they're coming in the back way into North Carolina, down through the Greensboro route, and then spreading out there. They have no real contact because uh, the road system is not exactly great. You're moving faster on river than you are on road, just trying to travel from west to east. And so the policies that they hear coming through the local dignitaries receiving you know, um, information via post from Tryon or from their elected officials that come back from either Wilmington at first or then Bern once the capital is built, It doesn't make sense to them. Most of them are, as they depicted in the last season, they're in one to three room cabins. They're just bartering and trading with neighbors. There's no real currency. They're not wealthy people. They're still breaking the land to open. And for them, the idea of paying all these taxes. And then you add in the fact, again, as some of their elected officials, we didn't really ask for this. And why are we paying for this? And oh, my gosh, even if we had asked for it, we didn't never planned such an extravagant thing and a lot of them are third and fourth generation um, at this point they've never seen a palace in london so for them when our guests come today they're like this isn't that huge but it is if you're in a one-room cabin it's a monstrosity (laughs) compared to how you're living and New Bern is a very prosperous town. People show that in what they're wearing in their clothes. And you've got a few paved streets in town and things like that. So they see the clear disparity between the coastal towns and ports and cities. And then once you go a little past Kingston, that prosperity doesn't seem to be sharing well. The average person in the West was not living anywhere close to the same standard of living as here in the East. So it's setting it up as a West versus East, as well as government
0: problem. I don't want to speak for the colonists of this period, but I have to imagine it almost seems like they now have two kings. You know, they have the king in England, and then they have this man who is their leader, Building his own palace in a lot of their backyard. I mean, and that that has to not sit well. And he's doing
1: it in the name of the king, too.
0: Exactly. And he's using their money to do it.
1: If this is how our royal governor is acting, then apparently the king is not hearing us either. Even some of the regulators and others write to other uh, colonial governors, and some sent direct petitions to London. Tryon is the intermediary. And there is no real response to any of those lower officials. And they've tried everything before the spring of 1771, and it hasn't worked. But are they expecting Tryon to truly fire upon them? No, I think they were operating on the fact that they thought they were going to negotiate again. And that's why they're not as well organized or trained and ready for a real pitched battle. And they're going up against a tactical officer who knew what he was
0: doing. He was hungry for a battle, and uh, it's it's what he's going to get. Next week, we are going to talk all about the Regulator Rebellion. We're going to visit uh, Alamance Battleground state historic site. So we're going to save our Regulator story for next week. But I'm curious, as this palace is built and he is really churning up unrest in North Carolina— What does this palace look like And, and what is happening in New Bern that's setting the stage for these final few months of Tryon's leadership?
1: In New Bern, once the palace is finished, it's just huge. Again, it's so much bigger than the average, even very wealthy person's plantation. And here in New Bern itself, everyone's kind of happy. We're the capital city now as he moves in in June of 1770. He hosts a ball on December 5th. For the very first time, uh, we see uh, a grand illumination. And for those who don't speak 18th century, fireworks are set off at at the evening of the ball to, you know, celebrate the official gathering at the Capitol uh, just prior to the Yuletide season. And it's hoped that, you know, we're not going to hear too much in January from the regulators, that they're going to calm down because in October, again, Tron had implied, you know, if you continue to do this. Since I'm pulling a militia into town and in January after the new year, that's when they start gathering. And that's what he's going to do. He starts building his army. They actually uh, first in camp uh, in the center of a racetrack here in town.
0: Okay. <laughs> and then on the
1: outer edges as the numbers get higher. Um, right now we actually have a militia encampment on the grounds of the palace. The race track no longer exists. So we can't put them outside the gate. Um, but He's getting them ready. And he also, since the regulators, some of them had implied they were going to gather a force and come down and burn down the palace, he's dug a defensive ditch around from the News River to the Trend. Uh, there's a little bit of a dike at both ends. And so if the regulators were to show up, the theory was they'd punch the new side of it with a greater water force and flood it and Newburn And the palace will be an Island unto itself. So he's determined to defend it. <laughs> wow. Yes,
0: that is, that's, that's a lot. And again, he's building, as you said, a four story palace. Yes, You know, he knows the unrest that it's causing. It is, it is really for him and this image of himself, but he's not there long. He yeah. He's only there for, for several Thirteen months, months, 13 yeah. months. And so he moves
1: in in June of seven, 1770, uh, a little bit prior. They start moving in. He's visiting. But the whole family's in by June of 1770. And then June 30th, he's on a ship up the 1771, headed to become royal governor of New York. He's going to stop off in Virginia first, but then then he'll arrive in New York.
0: For something that bears his name, that is that is quite a short time for him to actually have been making a mark there. And then Josiah Martin comes in. And again, we're going to focus on Josiah Martin's story in our our coming episodes. But it's, it's a really short legacy in a place that was built for him and that caused so much fracture in a colony that's already on edge.
1: And that's how it gets that nickname, Tryon has built himself a palace. He was asked to or told by London before he came here to pick a location to the last of the 13 colonies that still lacked a capital structure or government house. But it bears his name because of all the controversy and arguing, and then of course the battle itself that comes out of it, and the transfer. Again, he had some awareness that that was probably about to happen, and he chose to make sure that he thought he was anyway going to ease the way for martin to come into you know the issue having been settled really ultimately as we now know it's just beginning
0: what kind of governor does he become for new york in those final years before the revolution ah uh,
1: well that's kind of a, an interesting thing um, at one point there'll be a recruitment phrase in the neighboring state of connecticut the vile actions of governor William Tryon late of North Carolina and most recently of neighboring New York. (laughs) And that's a recruiter's tool to join the the continental army. So that tells you they know him well in the region when he gets up there. Um, he he is noted for some good things. Again, education, um, uh, amps the ferry system as he had done here, a few better paved uh, roads just as he had done here. Um, But then he also raises ire. He gets caught in a land scandal (laughs) akin to sort of the Whitewater issue in the 1980s and 90s. Royal governors were only supposed to be allowed to have, you know, like a small farm to help support the government house kitchens and things like this. They were not supposed to invest heavily in land and resell it and do all of these things. He does so in New York. He caters, again, to the more loyalist families. He doesn't listen to all the representatives. repeats a lot of the same actions here. Definitely enforces in full some of the tax, more controversial tax acts up in New York. Brings out the militia to announce some of them to make sure that you're seeing as they're being announced, here is the official military. If you're going to go against it, we're ready for you. (laughs) And yeah, he alienates a lot of the population there.
0: <laughs> so we, I guess we don't have to wonder why Diana Gabaldon and in the Stars series didn't follow his journey beyond his term here in North Carolina, because it was just more strife that followed Tryon.
1: Yes, I mean, he is a key figure when you truly look at all of his actions and the fact that he'll step down from that governorship into a brigadier general's command. And then he starts leading raids from Long Island, loads up ships, transports troops across. He's going into New York and into Connecticut repeatedly. The Danbury raids are the most famous, but there are multiple raids throughout the time that uh, during the war that he's involved in. And he actually is so brutal in some of these raids that they do their version in the 18th century, a rare version of sort of like a court-martial where they strip him of his rank, uh, drop him down to a straight general for a little bit, and then they raise him up higher again uh, after the war so he'll get a slightly better pension that he retires out with. But the whole thing for he and his wife is they're well-educated. And again, those connections with his sister in the Queen's court and her guardian, Lord Hillsborough, you know, 10 to 15 years as a royal governor, normally you would have become Lord and Lady Tryon. Well, that hadn't worked and now we're in open revolution. And so falling back into what he knew before he got here, you know, winning generals usually become Lord so-and-so. Who knew they were going to lose? Another neat thing is the fact that he plotted to kidnap George Washington. There seems to be some Some people who are like, well, we're not 100% sure. And yet they actually hung somebody who admitted and testified to the fact that, yes, they had plotted to do so. Um, Tryon had gone back to England for a bit. And when he returns at one point into New York, he gets off the ship and he thinks this huge cheering crowd is for him. And it happens to actually not be for him. A loyalist who had gone to meet Tryon as he got off the ship pulls him aside and says, no, no. That's for this Virginian general who's on his way to Massachusetts by the name of George Washington. And actually, Tryon sends him um, a few letters during the course of the war telling him, you know, you need to straighten up and you need to start negotiating because there's no way you're going to win. Essentially, most of these messages are like this. So it's interesting to see that, yes, he was he was talking to Washington as a fellow officer, like there's no possible way you can win this.
0: And that's even funnier because in season four, if you remember from our previous episode, we talked about how William Tryon is at the theater with Jamie in Wilmington when they bump into George Washington.
1: You know, they were steps away from one another on several occasions.
0: (laughs) (laughs) At at least in Outlander. So that's uh, that's that's an interesting kind of parallel. One one question I have about William Tryon, though, is does he survive the Revolutionary War?
1: Yes, he does. I mean, he'd done a lot of things. So beyond the little thing with uh, Washington, he also planted spies with some of our delegates um, as they're gearing up to write and sign the declaration. But yeah, you know, Tryon had his own sort of network of spies in addition to his military commands. And yes, he does survive. He makes it back. He doesn't pass until 1788. And so he's back in England. He has a Fairly good pension. He has a home in Twickenham, which at the time that he purchased it, it would have been just outside of London. Now it's part of London because London has grown so greatly over the past two centuries. So he did, he made pretty well.
0: Did he ever go back to Tryon Palace after he left and became no, governor of New York? He
1: left from uh, Long Island, just straight from Long Island. That was the British sort of stronghold and once sort uh, of the deal had been brokered a lot of the officers got on ships and just sailed directly from long island back to great britain so i mean his last site was of the last place that he was royal governor of and again where he had spent a number of years planning all those raids He was a well-trusted man, too. Um, Benedict Arnold, when he turned, of course, he went to Long Island. And so Tryon's one of the ones sort of keeping an eye on him along with a few other British officers to make sure he can't
0: flip back. (laughs) I don't know if Benedict Arnold is the person you best want to be associated with in the Revolutionary War, but...
1: Well, on the king's side, he was seen as a useful tool.
0: So for all of you who have read and watched Outlander, you thought he was mischievous on the show, you thought he was kind of a uh, a villain on Outlander. He he had his paws in even more things in real life. Now before I let you go, I want to let you tell me a little bit about how you created an Outlander tour At Tryon Palace, because as we just talked about, this was a huge focal point of this era that we're talking about in history, those those final years before the revolution. It's important in the books. It's important in the TV show. It was important in real life. So how are you kind of bringing Outlander to life at Tryon Palace today?
1: Well, the first script for an Outlander tour at Tryon Palace actually came about because of our state magazine. They wanted to bring a group down and take an Outlander tour. And uh, as a member of the education branch, someone came to me and said, oh, you know, those Outlander books, don't you? We have an outside group wanting to come in. And it's not just me who creates them. I write sort of an outline of bullet points, and then I share it with many of the other docents at the palace that are fans of first of the books. And and some of the purists are still with just the books, as you know, and then others who have also, like myself, started watching The Stars Adaptation. Um, Nancy Wilson, Sandra Lewis, uh, Joey Carlton, and a host of others have really helped uh, build the tours. And what we did is we decided, okay, we're going to, we want we want to enjoy this too, because we already enjoy the books. So do we talk about Jamie and Claire and Fergus and the others? Yes, we do. We talk about young Ian on the new tour and a few others too. And so, as we go through the fact versus fiction we do name drop the characters and so that everyone can sort of place what's going on um, according to the events of the time and um, not to be spoilers some of the family members will move to newburn um, according to the books now whether or not we'll see that on the starter as adaptation i don't know i think we probably will um, this new season and and a little bit next season Um, but putting them in here in town, we give you a a few little hints. We don't give major spoilers, though. Uh, We do our best to not push too much out there that the stars adaptation has not put out there, but we're willing to answer questions if one of the book readers wants to ask and know a little bit more, is this true or not? Mm -hmm.
0: So it's really about setting the scene for people and bringing them into the New that these characters would have seen in the mid 1700s.
1: Right. And discussing the events that lead to the Battle of Regulation and then the subsequent actions that lead to revolution that are identified in the books as well. And we also identified the main themes that most of the viewers really want to know more about. We go into 18th century medicine. We talk about the textiles and fashions of the time and how they're made. And, you know, are we all the way up to fashion as they are with France today? And probably not because of the delay in communication. But we do have some things like we're growing silk in North and South Carolina and then There are multiple other themes. The militia, of course, uh, allowed us to go ahead and it allowed our local Triumph Palace um, Continental Line Militia Reenactor, and we also, of course, do the King's Forces as well, to uh, sort of point out the actions that lead to revolution. And then, of course, later on, all of those themes are identified on the tour. And we've had several varying points, Outlander in the Palace, Outlander home and heart that sort of gives you the outline of things you need to know if you're going to time travel to the 18th century. And the news tour we designed to be done entirely outside because, of course, COVID had shut our doors. And the first thing we could open for the first uh, roughly four months that we were open again was just the gardens. So we came up with a tour that uses the grounds. In fact, kind of exciting news that we've come up with an updated Outlander in the Palace tour. And right now, It's tentative, but right now it looks like in May, as this season ends, don't worry about Droughtlander because we'll be going into the palace. And if you've read the books, you're going to enter the palace in a new way, taking the palace tour prior to COVID. We're going to be walking in Claire's literary, literal footsteps (laughs) through the palace.
0: That's exciting.
1: So I'm looking forward to it. And uh, we're also keeping to the 250th anniversary timeline of North Carolina history. So come on down and learn our real history and learn what's fact versus fiction in our Outlander Tours.
0: That's what you do on your site. That's what we do on ours. And that's what we're doing on this podcast. So, Susan, thank you so much for joining me. I encourage everyone to go visit Tryon Palace, take Susan and her colleagues' Outlander Tours. And I will talk to you soon, Susan.
1: All right. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. Join us next week when we will take a trip to Alamance Battleground in Burlington to recount the events of the Battle of Alamance in 1771 and the devastating impact it had on the Frasers and the real regulators who put their lives on the front lines four years before the revolution even began. Until then, be sure to subscribe to this podcast by searching Bergwin Wright Presents on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And leave us a review, which will help more people find the show. Be sure to also follow Bergwin-Wright House and Gardens on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, for the latest on what we're doing here at the site. This podcast and all the exciting projects we do at the Bergwin-Wright House are made possible by donations and community support. Please consider donating to our mission to further education and preservation of Wilmington's oldest historic site, by donating at the link in each episode's description or on our website at bergwinwrighthouse.com donate and the number one. Thank you so much for supporting us. This podcast was produced, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. We would like to thank Rachel Ross for our cover art design and the National Society of the Colonial Dames of America in the state of North Carolina for their support. I'll see you next time on Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Bergwin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at one 877